Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Keep Lefty Program with Victorian Labour College. In the, oops, in the studio is John Lafferty. Morning, everybody. And myself, Chris Gaffney. We'll be with you until 11 o'clock, and at 10.30 we'll have uh, phone-ins where you can have your say. Well, you're going to start, aren't you, with... Uh, I'm going to speak a cultural about, question. Cultural, a cultural point of view. Every now and again, the working class win a victory. Sometimes it's only a small victory, but even these small victories can be a source of great celebration and also great inspiration. This past week, one of these victories took place in the cultural field. The sport of Australian rules football has its roots in a big chunk of its ongoing support in the suburbs of Melbourne. Its most famous and popular teams all earned their reputations amongst the working class of the inner suburbs. At least since the 1980s, however, business corporations have been the ones deciding how the game should be run and where money should go to grow the game. At the grand final this year, that was last Saturday, 100,000 tickets were sold. Only 15,000 apiece went to the competing clubs. Well, MCC and AFL members and various corporations took a lot of the 70,000 tickets that were left. A look back at grand finals from the 60s and 70s shows that back then, this event was well within reach of the average fan. I went to one of them in the 1980s and it wasn't that expensive. Ticket prices were affordable then. Also, fans could display their own, usually homemade banners and gear to show support of what was often their own local team. Today, such gear is called merchandise or merch and is made in some overseas sweatshop. The display of this gear is kept well away from the playing area. Instead, such as the corporations such as the Japanese car maker Toyota, they're prominent all around the field and on the field, everywhere, on the players' shirts, everywhere you look. Instead um, of local labels, the alcohol drinks company CUB is another with a strong representation at AFL Games. CUB today is a foreign-owned company which sacks 55 of its own workforce, then seeks to rehire them in a 65% wedge cut. Even at last Friday's grand final parade, they had a float. Some in the crowd quite rightly booed the float, but the important thing to do is to boycott the company's products. Over the past 30 odd years, the old VFL, the Victorian Football League, has been transformed into the Australian Football League. This process was made formal in 1990, and of course, as the game grew, it was inevitable that it would expand from a state to a national competition. What was wrong with the change from the VFL to the AFL was how it was directed from the top down. The tiny clique known as the AFL Commission has been very dictatorial in its handling of these matters and its removal of some old clubs in favour of newer ones exemplifies this. People in the cities of Sydney and Brisbane are traditionally more focused on rugby league and soccer, but the AFL bosses have always wanted to expand what they call their brand into hopefully lucrative markets. This is the way all capitalists view the world and how they operate in the world. In 1980, the relatively weak Fitzroy Football Club was targeted for the shift to Sydney, but they initially managed to resist. So in 1981, it was South Melbourne Football Club, struggling on and off the field for years, whose own board decided to move their club to Sydney. The board. The fans, the people to whom the club should really belong, put up a fight. In late 1981, a group of them known as Keep South at South 
democratically took control of the board. Sadly, the intervention of the VFL and their own money-focused players made sure that the club did relocate north. In 1985, business crook Geoffrey Edelstein bought the Swans, now the Sydney Swans, for between $3 million and $5 million. The club which played in the grand final last Saturday with this, was this one, with no connection at all to South Melbourne or the working-class South Melbourne fans. Following this successful manoeuvre, the now AFL attempted to merge two of the least successful Melbourne clubs, the Fitzroy Lions and the Footscray Bulldogs. This was called a merger, and the idea actually originated with the Bulldogs' board in 1988-89. After secret discussions, a merger plan was put forward by the VFL. The new club would be called Fitzroy, with the team called the Fitzroy Bulldogs. Its colours would be Fitzroy's red, blue and gold, as opposed to Footscray's red, blue and white. Most importantly, its games would be played at Princess Park, actually the home of Carlton Football Club, at that time run by Liberal Party President and alcohol tycoon, you know the big nose? Yeah, yeah, Elliot. John Elliot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Princess Park is close to Fitzroy, but it's nowhere near Footscray or the western suburbs. This proposed merger organised to suit the interests of a tiny clique of businessmen who understand little more than profit margins was met by a response which did the western suburbs proud. Strong anger was the predominant mood of the Footscray fans. Because the three areas which most clearly defined the club's identity, its name, its colours and its home ground, were now all from Fitzroy, the merger was seen as an actual takeover of the western suburbs club. Class warfare became a very pronounced theme in the response of these fans. It was seen as a club from the working class being gobbled up at the behest of these businessmen. To the people in power, though, the corporate class and their media, the merger was a foregone conclusion. Predictions were made as to the new team's prospects, and the old club logos were even removed from VFL buildings. In response, the Footscray Fightback Foundation, led by solicitor Peter Gordon, was established. Then the rank-and-file supporter Irene Chatfield won a stay of proceedings against the merger in the Victorian Supreme Court. The fans were told they'd, uh, they'd need to raise $1.5 million to save their club. This was later raised, I don't, I don't even know how that happened, this was later raised to $1.8 million, 300000 extra. 10,000 fans at an initial rally raised $450,000. 10,000 raised $450,000. Mm-hmm. Soon door knocking and tin rattling increased that amount. Fans from other clubs also chipped in. They too wanted the Bulldogs in the competition. $1.1 million was raised in this way, and over $1 million was also raised through a sponsorship, it's really advertising deal, with ICI. Now, ICI are not exactly the most politically correct organisation, but they're a major employer, we're a major employer in the western suburbs, and so, you know, they got their names splashed all over the shop. In this way, the Footscray Football Club was able to continue on. It continued to underachieve on the field. Up until last Saturday, it had only one premiership to show for 139 years in existence and 92 years at the top level. It has always had to battle. Going into the final series this year, the Bulldogs were given a 1-4 chance of winning their first match, which was played over in Perth. They won it by a large margin. 
And their second match, and yet again as an outsider, they defeated the champion team of the last three years. In order to make the grand final, and yet again as an underdog, they travelled to West Sydney to beat the AFL's latest manufactured team. You won't know who they are, will you, Chris? Who did the Bulldogs beat to make the grand final? The um, AFL's latest manufactured team. The Sydney team? Yeah. Sydney Swans? No. doesn't matter. Not right. But they're from Sydney. Is that wrong, is it? <laughs> GW, Greater Western Sydney. Oh, great. The Great West of Space. Oh, yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> Last Saturday, it was apt, and I think it was very apt, that they should face Sydney, the original Sydney, the original AFL business model. Oh, I thought that's what you were talking about. Yeah, yeah well, there's two Sydneys now. Sydney are supported by Malcolm Turnbull, but that's just one reason to dislike them. I won't go through all the reasons <laughs> to dislike Sydney, because there's maybe some of the fans listening. The Bulldogs went in yet again as outsiders at $2.50, and the Bulldogs won the AFL Premiership. In doing so, they set an example of what can be achieved when people have unity and belief in ourselves. Not everybody will understand this, but if they'd been at the Western Oval last Sunday with 30,000 other folk, eh, they might you know, get close to understanding. Just as the working class have to defend our industrial organisations, we have to defend our cultural organisations. Community and solidarity are integral to what it means to be working class. I reckon that the team and the club and the fans... I'm a member for seven years. I'm a little bit biased. Are you? (laughs) Of what? Of the Bulldogs. Oh, are you really? I didn't realise that. The team, the club and the fans stand as an inspiration. Well, right. (laughs) I'm glad you got that off your chest. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, well, uh, there are three. Uh, David uh, Donald Trump has released three pages from his tax return, which were made public in the Sydney <laughs> New York Times, and I think they provide a better insight into the real nature of the capitalist system than all the speeches, platforms, polls, and policy statements made by any of the Republican and Democratic candidates. The real estate and casino billionaire made use of a tax provision that favours the real estate industry to declare paper losses of $916 million in 1995, which he could then use to offset income up to that amount for tax purposes over the next 18 years. A separate provision allows him to write off another $15 million in losses, more than offsetting his entire income in the year in which the return was filed. The Trump campaign didn't deny the veracity of this Times report, only uh, only asserting that the Republican candidate had taken legal deductions and that his tax return was in conformity with the tax laws at the time. Now, what I don't understand is why when Donald Trump, this was exposed, Donald Trump didn't say, well, I did this under laws that your administration stands by. Mm. I mean... What laws did he observe in in, uh, avoiding all that tax? Well, the same law that all the other rich people have. 1998, 1995, Clinton was in office. That's right, exactly. Obama doesn't change anything. No, that's right. So nothing's changed. So this is the the way things are for all Mm. the capitalists. So to simply emphasise Donald Trump, who's the swine of the first order... is um, is to miss the point. Billionaires can take advantage of priv- provisions of the tax code written to their specifications <laughs> by, by them, them. 
by them, <laughs> by their congressmen and centres, signed into law by their presidents, invoked for their benefit by their paid accountants and tax lawyers, and upheld in case of a rare challenge by their courts, who do their bidding. When it comes to wages... We have the tax taken out before we actually get any oh, wages. No, yes. I mean, it's obligatory. You pay tax. Yeah, tell you, that's right. For these guys, I mean, a team of solicitors and well, accountants. Well, only the mentally, mentally ill Optional. pay taxes. Exactly. Pretty much that's what Trump's been saying. He's smart. Well, he said this. the system is, this is Trump, the system is rigged. But, of course, he uh, obscures the question of who rigged it. Well, the billionaires rigged it, working through their agents in the Democratic and the Republican Party. Any worker or small business person who has to deal with the IRS in America, as it's known, or the tax department here, knows what happens when a tax return is ordered or challenged or deductions are disallowed. The IRS, the tax department, mobilises its agent, garnishes wages, seizes properties, poses punitive fees and penalties for late payment, even sometimes drives its targets into bankruptcy. But members of Trump's class have no fear of of tax audits. This is an agency, of course, that has been deliberately weakened, at least in relation to the super-rich, over the past several decades. He said that he gets audited every year, and one of the reasons why he says he won't reveal his tax, I think the initial reason he gave was because it was still under audit. I saw him giving that. I think during the debate he said that, I can't tell you because I'm being audited. Yes, well, yeah, you can bet that's bullshit. Billionaires and big corporations routinely climb gigantic deductions or paper losses. According to a Reuters report of April 2016, a fifth of all large profitable corporations paid no tax at all in 2012, the, year for, the last year for which figures are available. And the ad- average tax rate paid by corporations was 14% even though the nominal corporate income tax is 35%, not 14 Nominal. <laughs> a second report by USA Today found that 27 companies in the Fortune 500 paid no tax at all. Thousands of millionaires, including many billionaires, paid no federal income tax because of various accounting gimmicks and manoeuvres. Trumpers campaigned as a successful business who would use his business skills to transform the US economy and the federal government. This is a total hoax, of course, as his colossal one-year loss of nearly a billion dollars demonstrated. His real expertise is in gaming the system. He's brought up a, built up a huge fortune despite six bankruptcies. Six bankruptcies. Countless swindles of subcontractors and gullible small investors. And notoriously, those who paid fees for education at Trump University and Trump's real estate in the institute... Trump epitomises the social, political and moral squalor of the capitalist financial elite, which represents a criminal underworld raised to new heights in 21st century America. I thought that uh, Trump actually reported losses... Uh, or, you know, went into debt so that he could avoid paying taxes. For instance, in 1995, what you were speaking about yeah, before, yeah. it was nearly a billion dollars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I read something, I found it hard to really understand, that because he lost nearly a billion dollars, he was therefore exempt for paying taxes. Well, he's got tax in the next Any income years. he earns in the next years yeah. is put against the debt, his deficit. Yeah. So if he earned $4 billion and he's got a, a tax <laughs> write-off of $8 billion, well, uh, no tax problem. No. Um, uh you might remember Leonie Hemsley, uh, another real estate billionaire. She became notorious for the declaration overheard by a housekeeper, and I quote here, we don't pay taxes, 
Only the little people pay taxes, mm. end of quote. They're stupid, those little people. Well, presumably, oh, of course they are. <laughs> Tax evasion by the super-rich has become a way of life over the last 25 years. The creation of tax dodgers like limited liability companies has been accompanied by the effective abolition of the estate tax on inherited wealth. Over the course of this period, corporate taxes fell from a third of federal revenues to only 10%, while the nominal tax rate on the wealthiest individuals was cut from 70 to 35%. While the New York Times and the Clinton campaign treat Trump as an exception, his manipulation of the tax code to great, amass great wealth is the rule, not the exception. A whole system of financial parasitism has developed in which real estate speculation, banking, stock exchange, hedge funds and offshore tax avoidance form. That's the standard operating procedure for an entire social layer. The Clintons personified this corruption just as much as Trump, even if they made a different use of uh, use it by a different mechanism and on a somewhat smaller scale. They amassed a fortune exceeding $150 million in the decade after Clinton left the White House, mainly through six-figure fees for addressing corporate and Wall Street audiences. Barack Obama will take a similar path. Now, just while I'm on uh, Hillary and uh, stupid face... This uh, Hillary Clinton has repeatedly denied that she sold weapons to the Islamic State mm. while, and Al Qaeda while serving yeah. as Secretary of State. Through Libya, yeah. <coughs> Julian Assange claims he has proof to the contrary. Mm. In Obama's second term, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton authorized the shipment of American made arms to Qatar, a country beholden to the Muslim Brotherhood and friendly to the Libyan rebels in an order to topple the Gaddafi government and then ship those armaments over to Syria in order to fund al-Qaeda and topple Assad in Syria. You didn't mean to say good Gaddafi government. That was, yeah. Uh, the Gaddafi government. Yeah, yeah Gaddafi. Mm. Clinton took the re- leading role in organising the so-called Friends of Syria, a.k.a. al-Qaeda and ISIS, mm-hmm. To back, although there's some doubt about that, I mean, there's 20 organisations, so using one term to describe them all is a misleading. She took a leading role in organising so-called Friends of Syria to back the CIA-led insurgency for regime change in Syria. Under oath, Hillary Clinton denied she knew about the weapons shipments during public testimony in early 2013 after the Benghazi terror attack. In an interview with Democracy Now!, WikiLeaks' Julian Assange is now stating that 1,700 emails contained in the Clinton cache directly connect Hillary to Libya, to Syria, and directly to al-Qaeda and ISIS. And you can read the full testimony in www.thepoliticalinsider.com. And that's an interview with Julian Assange. Yeah, yes. well, it's, it's reporting on what he did. Mm-hmm. Now... We've got 10 minutes. And the other thing I'm going to do is something I've never dealt with before, and that's the question of marijuana. Now, what you probably didn't realise was that the founding fathers in the United States... No, they used hemp, and George that's right. George Bush, the elder, used hemp, and hemp does, hemp does have very useful uh, properties. Oh, of course it does. Of <laughs> you know, course it does. It's been but, smoked. Uh, those it's, useful properties are not becoming a, uh, you know... 
becoming an everyday drug addict, that's not the useful properties of uh, the cannabis. Carry on. Well, I, you probably didn't know that the American founders, Jefferson, mm. Washington... They grew it. They all grew cannabis. Yeah, yeah. And tobacco. And, they, and, and they grew both. And cotton. And, but when you actually Google marijuana on that, what the first thing that comes up is that it's a gateway drug. Mm. In other words, that if you smoke this pretty soon, you'll be uh, snorting ice. Well, I mean, a lot of people don't. Well, some I, do, some don't. Yeah, well, some do. Some drink a cup of tea and then go on to ice. I mean, it, there's no even direct evidence of this. That's a bit too many. But go uh, for generations, <laughs> our, the federal government's been writing history as it pertains to cannabis. Just me month, just this month, we learned that 50 years ago, Big Sugar paid Harvard scientists to refute evidence from a major show, study that shows sugar plays a significant role in increasing, increasing the risk of heart disease. That's what was being shown. After receiving their payout, the Harvard scientists decided to point the blame at fat instead. And for 50 years, we've been relying on that very study to determine what is a healthy nutritional diet. Little we, did we know that these scientists were basically being bribed to come up with that conclusion. Other researchers were conducting similar studies and found the results that Harvard did not disclose, that sugar played a significant role in heart conditions. The Harvard researchers actually dismissed any conflicting studies, stating things like eating less sugar and more vegetables isn't, quote, a feasible dietary change. I mean, it's bizarre. Corporations like Coca-Cola have offered to pay researchers to determine that drinking sugary drinks does not lead to a greater risk of obesity or type 2 diabetes. How does that relate to marijuana? Mm. Easy. There are two conflicting scientific ideologies, I use scientific with inverted commas, when it comes to marijuana. The first one says, marijuana is a Schedule 1 narcotic, just as dangerous as heroin, with no medical benefits whatsoever, and it's a gateway drug. Cannabis is just as legal as tobacco is, okay? This is the fact of the matter. You will only be uh, criminalised if you're selling, if, if it's trafficable quantities, very same as tobacco. If it's for private use in... But in, the law in, is still in, on in the most book. Western European... No, I'm sorry, in most Western countries, in some cu countries of Europe and in some states of the US, it's totally legal. Yeah, but... So it, it is practically as legal is tobacco. Is. Well, I don't think that's in well, any way true. Well, well, I, 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 of course I, it's widely used by over a million you Australians. You will not be criminalised if, well, if, if you're using if you're caught for with yourself. It, if you're caught with it, they will charge you. No, only if it's a trafficable amount. Well, right. Marijuana, the second scientific view, the first one is that it's a narcotic and awfully dangerous. The second one is that it's a medicinal plant with great value for many diseases and incurable conditions. Mm. Over the years, studies have proved both points. How can it be possible? Well, what we've got to do is take a look at who is funding and approving the studies. If the results of the studies fit into the first scientific ideology, then that's a pretty good indication that the study was conducted in the United States. Since marijuana is a Schedule I narcotic, any researcher in the United States must go to the Drug Enforcement Agency and ask permission to do so. Isn't that amazing? The DEA then decides if the study is worth pursuing. Only in America can a law enforcement agency have the right to decide what scientists can or cannot research. If you come across a study that lists any 
positive results, such as how THC, which is the uh, yes the potent part of marijuana, and t- which they're, and which they're trying to make as much. I mean, if if you've got a, a businessman, a capitalist, he wants to get as much THC into the cannabis as possible. Right, you get the smaller the amount, the more THC, the more money you can make out of it. Now, at present, that is that is what is not legal unless it's medicinal, you know, and it's becoming more and more. They're they're businessmen, they're capitalists, the same as the tobacco manufacturers or the alcohol manufacturers. Personally speaking, I think we should totally decriminalise all the drugs, and including cannabis, which in my opinion is a very boring drug. But whatever, if people want to stick, you know, light up paper and stick bloody chemicals up their bum or whatever, oh, let them do it. Smoke yes, it. Yeah. If they're stupid enough to do it, let them do it. But let's make money. Out. Let's tax it. Let's make money out of it. In this country, should be growing it and selling well, of course it. We, of course and we should. selling it. But we also should be with opium. Too. So if we come across a study that lists any positive results, such as how THC can cause brain tumours to shrink, an awful lot of mental illness is directly and d- disappear to entirely. Cannabis. Then that's a good indication the study was conducted not in the United States. The mainstream media in the United States won't cover the findings, and if any politician is asked about the medical benefits of marijuana, the response are made, we need more research. That's rubbish. Marijuana has been more researched than almost any other drug on the planet. But there are, medic- there are medicinal uses to alcohol, to he- heroin, of course. You know, it was a great painkiller. So what's uh, the point you're making now? Well, it has it, medicinal. Of course, think, it has medicinal yes, uses. Yeah, but you know, these are But denied. the majority of people we're speaking about are using it to get high. Yes, of course. So what? So what? <laughs> yeah. so oh, what? you let them do it. Let them do it, and, and, and let's make money out of it too. Think about know. all the industries who would be threatened by marijuana. But be aware of how much harm it can cause too. Well, the only the only harm ever decided is the fact of the, you're, in, you're taking smoking to your lungs. Other than that. Nothing has been proved about this. Nothing has been proved about You don't now. believe there's a great except link for between... People, except for, for immature... And people under, say, 24 shouldn't tackle marijuana. You don't believe this... Because the brain hasn't fully formed and it can have some effects there. But for people over 24, <laughs> there's been no evidence... That, that is a bizarre comment, Chris, because in my experience, my personal experience and the experience of people I know, the most folk who are attracted to this childish drug it, it, it usually are teenagers and early 20s. And most folk, what, what tra- most folk, is because it it's that- just, it seems to be attractive to very young people. It seems to be very attractive to, you know, like teenagers and early 20s. That's been my experience and the people I know's experience. Well, some of them can continue- my experience <laughs> is that people of all ages smoke marijuana. And let me tell you that a lot of people of retirement age and smoke it too. I think this is absolute nonsense. Well, that's because they're addicted, that's why. Well, think, about all the, think about all the industries who would be threatened by marijuana if it became legal, especially for medical purposes. Think of all the money those companies give to politicians. Oh, well, that's just rivalry between different businesses. Yeah. And you're always going to get that. You're always going to, I mean, somebody will say, well, buy my cigarettes. No, not buy my cigarettes. Buy alcohol. No, 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 buy cannabis. That's just, that's just business. But I think you're, missing, I think that's you're just missing the point. You're missing the point that one drug, one drug is being demonised and lied about, Chris. whereas other drugs that actually, like cigarettes, tobacco, Chris. causes, and alcohol, can let me finish, Alcohol and cigarettes cause massive social damage, whether you go from traffic accidents, violence, domestic violence, fights, 
You are you are stuck in the past, and possibly in the nineteen fifties. Oh. No, now listen. Possibly in the nineteen. So possibly in the drink 50, driving's not a problem listen, now. Possibly in the fifties, sixties, maybe the seventies. Cannabis was demonised. Since in my adult life, cannabis has been given the best media possible, so and more and more. Why is it not legal? More and more, nicotine has been demonised. Yeah, but what? and alcohol has been demonised. There's very little demonisation because largely of your generation. And I believe that you are stuck in the 60s with these comments. Oh, it's demonised. It's not demonised. It's well, not demonised. It's glorified. Well, simple, the simple answer to that nonsense, the simple answer to that nonsense <laughs> is the fact that it's still illegal. It's not illegal, only for trafficable amounts. But as I point out, it is also illegal to traffic tobacco. It's the same thing. If you were to traffic tobacco, it's against you were to the law to that would be illegal. marijuana. No, it is a, no, don't it's, say it's it. against the law to traffic marijuana. No, if you no, were to smoke marijuana that's, here, that's a different question. Whether the police no will prosecute you, they is, won't. They, they may not. But if you're caught marijuana, you will be prosecuted well, when because it's you, against no, against the law. No, they won't. A conservative show host told tried to tell the author with a study that showed that marijuana has a negative of impact on the brain's ability to remember. He didn't know where the study was conducted or who did the research. In fact, he didn't know about the studies that showed that marijuana helps people with Alzheimer's. Yes, but most people don't have Alzheimer's, Chris. Most people don't have Alzheimer's. Well, I can tell you, when you reach my age, lots of people do. My own father died of Alzheimer's. Yeah, but most people don't. Well, what the hell has that got to do with anything? Well, most people are not going to have their memory improved by smoking marijuana. because they don't improve your memory. Okay, carry on. It said, what I actually said was... That it helps people getting, with Alzheimer's. We're getting, we're getting close. Now, there is one DEA and FDA-approved study underway on US soil that could prove unprecedented positive results. Dr. Sue Sisley's, Sisley is examining if whole plant can, cannabis can help with severe cases of PDSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome, if veterans were allowed to smoke it as a treatment option. The only way she received federal approval was due to support from veterans groups that pressured the government. With 20 or more veterans committing suicide every day, that means more service men and women die after turning home from combat than on the battlefield. The Founding Fathers knew the value of democracy as well as cannabis. In poll after poll, more than half the American people want to see it legalised. If that's true... And I want, I want to see it legalised, but let's... Oh, so it's not legal? Le- no, I want... You concede it's not legal? I, I think no, no, I think they should all be decriminalised. So it's not legal? You, you concede it's not legalised? No, no, I think they should all be decriminalised. What I said, Chris, and you know what I said, is that it's just as legal to smoke pot for your own personal bloody use. No one could give a damn, right? In fact, in some countries, in some American except, states, it is totally legal, just let me finish. Except, it's only if you have trafficable amount, and that is the very same law as covers tobacco. If you traffic tobacco, well, you can be prosecuted. Untrue. It's not this untrue. This is just untrue. But can I, I just say, yes, I do believe in decriminalisation, not just of pot, the, you know, this drug, this pot, but, but of all drugs. Well, I agree Why with that Why don't you bring too. in all the other drugs? Okay, okay, okay. Well, can I just quickly say that snorting... Because you interrupted and distorted what I wanted I, to say to such an extent it <laughs> hardly seemed worth the effort. Can I just quickly say it's this? It's 10.30 now, people. It's your chance to ring up. The number to ring is 94190155. Go on. Can yeah. I just say Snowden's a very good movie? Yeah, right, good. Snowden, have you seen it? Uh, no, no. It's, but, uh, it's well worth watching. 